Welcome to The Paulist, a daily comics analysis podcast. Every day I take a comic book and I try to analyze it from a variety of perspectives in dialogue with comic studies and um, other academic fields. Today I'm going to be talking about our Friday family graphic novel, which is March Book 3 by John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, and Nate Powell from Top Shelf IDW Comics. Um, thanks for joining me. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We'd love if you would rate and review us. It would help us out to be um, to be able to get out there. And um, I'm Tuplai. I'm on Twitter at T-W-O-P-L-A-I. You can email me at Tuplai at gmail.com. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited about this episode. This is an important one for me. I don't know if there's been one that I've been more hyped um, to talk about since I've started this about a month and a half ago. Um, and it's been a labor of love for me to do this podcast, but I'm also going to um, take a break, a hiatus after this, as I've said for the last several days. Um, but in the meantime, you can still you know, leave me some comments. You can still reach out to me um, through Twitter or, or email, as I said, tuplai, T-W-O-P-L-A-I on Twitter or um, at Gmail. Um, and um, or, or it'd be great if you're listening to this, if you could rate and review the show. Um, I am uh, embarking on a project, really. I think that comics are a medium worth studying, and that's what I'm here to do. I also think that um, there's something really uh, meaningful and powerful in the potential of studying comics and analyzing comics from all the different ways that you can look at it, formally, textually, um, artistically, aesthetically, uh, but also socially and culturally. And... Um, uh, and I, I think there's something to be gained in a certain discipline of, of an analysis and um, engaging in the discourse around comics. So I try to read a lot of comics journalism. I try to read a lot of um, comic studies from various perspectives. Uh, today, though, we're going to be talking about March. And it, as will soon become apparent in what I talk about, there's a lot to March that um, I'm pulling from things that are sort of outside of comic studies um, to think a little bit about what the story means and why it's significant. But first, a little bit of the context um, in in comics. Um, something that I haven't read but I'm sure is out there is some comic studies works. And I'd love if you reach out to me and point me to where, where this is already in publication that really analyze the psychology of violence that's in comic books. There's um, a, a sort of a f undeniable fact that, you know, um, the the comics medium has a, contains a lot of action, a lot of um, a lot of violence, a lot of um, you know physical stuff, <laughs> and you know it's probably partially because of the nature of it as a visual medium, and partially because of the kinds of stories that have um, gained popularity and that creators have chosen to tell. Um, whether it's superhero violence or whether it's violence within um, crime or horror or um, science fiction and fantasy, you know, it just seems like a comic book that doesn't include um, either some kinds of, um, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat or shooting or assaults or tactical something or other, or at least, you know, jumps and dives and falling into the ocean or whatever. You know, if you don't have that, you sort of wonder why you even made it a comic in the first place. Um, and I think that that makes sense because those are things that excite us and engage us as audiences. Um, you know, most of us would rather spend a Saturday evening watching an action movie than an art house film with two people sitting at a uh, cafe talking about the meaning of life. 
I say most of us, not all of us for sure. <laughs> and there's a lot of evenings where I'd rather have the cafe movie than an action movie. Maybe actually more, more of those evenings than the other. But um, I think suffice it to say, you know, it, the, the evidence is everywhere. And, and I'm always going on and on about how, you know, diverse comics are, how exciting it is that very different stories are being told. And, you know, there's stories for, um, you know, young people and kids and there's stories for grownups and stories for old comics heads who've been hanging around the comic shop forever and stories who are for people who are new to, to the medium. Um, but I do think that there are some proclivities that comics have. And one of those proclivities, especially American comics, is a kind of obsessive, um, uh, you know, returning to violence again and again and again. And it can be exhausting. That's actually the thing that I think tires me out the most about reading comics is to have to sit through another action scene, another combat scene. Sometimes it's really cool. Sometimes new things are being brought to it aesthetically. Sometimes it means things symbolically. Um, and I'm not the kind of person who is um, afraid of or even really wants to censor too much um, the kinds of depictions of violence that are there. Um, I don't censor myself from them. And, and I really think that, um, you know, there's just some core human fears, you know, whether you consider them reptilian or, or they continue to just sort of hold for us in, um, in a contemporary age of, of police violence, terrorism, whatever. Basically, the, the notion of bodies being um, assaulted, attacked, um, torn apart by guns, torn apart by, by um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, aliens. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking now of like Kirkman comics now <laughs> you know i'm thinking about limbs um being ripped off anyway it's everywhere and a question that i've always asked myself is what kind of stories can we tell that still are about heroism that are still about um um you know accomplishing justice or or you know bringing about a better world or a better situation what kind of stories can we tell with comics that don't involve violence that involve power but not violence that involve um uh, justice you know you can call, call it retribution you could call it um re reparation <laughs> whatever uh can can we tell stories that aren't um premised on violence and more specifically on on you know a violent response to um, violence being done by others um can batman you know batman has this cardinal rule of not killing um unless you're the ben affleck batman but um, or others i guess in, in his history but you know batman has a cardinal rule of killing but he's essentially a violent vigilante figure you know um and i think that is an important question because we read these you know, we read all this media, um, and I, you know, I'm not simplistic to think that we read it and then we turn around and are violent. No, I think um, it's quite different. In fact, sometimes I think that our energies, our violent energies, get um, find expression or find a kind of catharsis in the media that we um, that we engage in. But I, I still just continually struggle with this question of: Is it possible for comics to provide? You know, and not just comics, but I ask the same questions of film and television and, and even music and so forth. An alternative way, if the way of violence is fundamentally a, a problem and a stain in our human society. 
you know, and, and not everybody thinks that way, I know. Not everybody thinks that violence is a stain, you know. And, of course, I'm not so naive as to not recognize that violence in defense of justice or violence in defense of the defenseless or the weak um, is a factor at play. Um, I've struggled and wrestled throughout my life with the philosophy of nonviolence, with, um, with what it means morally and ethically what it what, what it might mean politically and really what it means theologically and i think i am i and remain um an ardent seeker of what nonviolence means nonviolence that is um uh not only you know passivity but um that is active in bringing about justice and um in protecting the the oppressed and the weak and um yeah and all of that stuff and and i i mean I'm not going to get it, go into that here, but I think it is worth questioning comics, who a medium that, you know, so much relies on the slickness of visual design, you know, and, you know, of course, there's plenty of comics that are about romance or basketball or, <laughs> or two people, you know, as I talked about yesterday in Peanuts, with Peanuts, you know, two kids sitting at a wall talking about whatever, <laughs> life and their significance and how they're being treated by Lucy. Um, obviously plenty of comics that are not, you know, predicated on violence. Um, but there's also plenty that are, and, you know, I, I think, um, those kinds of questions leave me constantly searching for, and sometimes it's the superhero story that winds up not relying on the violence of the hero. Um, in fact, many of the best stories, uh, are are that exactly that way? Not relying on the violence or the violent act or the forceful use of um, of their powers on the part of heroes, but on something else. And that something else, I think, is something to be philosophically, you know, examined and teased out, and sometimes to be critiqued. And I think some good comics have asked questions about when you have a principled stance of not acting, not raising a fist. Um, what consequences then do you face? Um, you know, it's it's the question that a just war theorist would ask a, a pacifist. And it's a good one. It's a good question. And anyone who believes in nonviolence in any sense has to wrangle with those kinds of questions. All right. Having said that, um, searching for that all my comics reading life corresponds also with... Um, you know, the, the subject of what we're reading today, which is March Volume 3. Um, I probably don't need to give this background if you're already listening, but I might as well. Um, John Lewis is a civil rights hero, um, a, a leader during the civil rights movement, is a, um, a congressman, um, and, you know, still serving, still in the headlines, still in the news, recently was a, a part, um, I think, a leader also in a sit-in staged by um, congressional representatives demanding legislation on gun control um, in the wake of, you know, shootings in Orlando and so on. And, um, you know, so still active. Um, and he working with um, Andrew Aiden, who I think uh, works with him in his office, um, uh, a, the, a descendant of a Muslim American father. Um, recently, Mr. Aiden has, um, <laughs> you know, sort of publicly worn a beard in solidarity with other Muslims, uh, Muslim Americans in a time when uh, that is, um, you know, irrationally being um, uh, uh, witch hunted um, because of the, the politics of the moment. And then Nate Powell, Nate Powell, a 
cartoonist um, who's been around uh, for a long time and whose work you know, I've really enjoyed and read and who for, who for some reason I'm just blanking on the names of everything else he's done. Things that are really like this book, like The Silence of Our Friends and also other things like uh, Sounds of Your Name and jeez, uh, um, I'm blanking on the big Nate Powell works, but I've read them all. Um, flies and um, people dealing with mental health. Anyway, <laughs> Nate Powell is awesome and I'm going to talk later on about why he's perfect for this book, I think. Um, but we're here in volume three, volume one, volumes one and two have sort of, you know, won their, their fair share of um, not only critical acclaim and awards, but also um, hearts and readers. And I think March, you know, March is already being widely read in schools and being talked about. And that's a, an incredibly important thing. Um, some of the demonstrations that um, Congressman Lewis and others have staged even at um, Comic-Con as a statement um, of excitement and solidarity with, um, you know, movements, um, social movements, civil rights movements uh, are are kind of an exciting um, inching of the comics world towards the um, wider political world. Probably a little late, but... <laughs> um, yeah, so this is the the third volume and the closing volume of this trilogy. Uh, it's already, you know, going to be collected really, really soon in some kind of fancy slipcase thing. And you're going to bet I'm going to be there for that. Um, because March is a book that I've been waiting my whole life for. Um, because of the things that I said earlier about my questions about comics and violence. But also because... Um, for me, as an immigrant in the United States, um, as a you know Chinese American who grew up in the '80s and '90s in the United States, I I came uh, of age at a time when um, the you know <laughs> um, there's a James Lowen book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Um, it's it's a it's a sort of a, a condensed version of the kind of thing that you might read in the Howard's and people's history, of the United States or something like that. Um, you can call it revisionist if you want, but it's really capturing history from the, from below history, from the view of, um, regular people. And, um, and lies my teacher told me really, um, sort of deconstructs the mythologies of the American founding fathers. I remember as a kid learning patriotism and at the same time learning to question patriotism, uh, le learning about Columbus as the founder of America and also learning to utterly shatter that myth. Um, learning about George Washington and then learning that there were things that were good and things that were bad about George Washington from our modern, you know, perspective, our modern lenses. And, um, and so finding for me as an adolescent, finding, um, a cultural and a historical, uh, legacy that I could attach myself to, you know, in terms of my principles, my ethics, my sense of what matters and what's right and what's wrong. Um, the, the civil rights movement became my, you know, if you're an American, my founding, you know, founding fathers or brothers or whatever you want to call them. Uh, you know, they, they became the sort of, um, uh, you know, the the Rushmore of, of heroism for me. Um, and of course, you know, when I was a kid, everything was rushing to change its name to Martin Luther King. Um, everything, everything was, um, 
sort of slowly coming around to acknowledge at least the comfortable aspects of multiculturalism that we wanted to believe about ourselves and enjoy, um, even while we were living in Reagan era, in Reagan era economics and in, um, you know, Willie Horton narratives and things like that. Um, the, uh, the, uh, welfare queen, um, storylines that were, were, were promoted in the media, um, Basically, what I'm saying is the persistence of racism, um, the persistence of deep and deep and um, and systematically embedded racism. Um, and so in, in, in looking for stories that provided a narrative of heroism beyond Batman that I could actually imagine myself attaching my young adult self to, um, you know, I think that the civil rights era heroes, the civil rights era story became my um, my founding story. It was really the founding of, you know, the, the sort of incredible revolution uh, that um, that was part and parcel of, of global revolution, part and parcel of, you know, contemporary movements of liberation. And I, I just could see myself and attach myself to those. Um, in the last book, March, Volume 2, um, a lot of the pieces... Were, were laid down all, all the books have been great all of the books have had their own sort of um narrative arc and you know you started from the the lunch counters and the um freedom writers and those sorts of things and and by this volume it's just incredibly satisfying because so many pieces have been laid down and now the stage has been set and what's exciting about this what's you know it's just immeasurably exciting about this is that all this great narrative none of it is you know, it's also historiography. You know, we're not making this stuff up. Certainly, it is a take on it. We, I'm not part of the creative team here. I'm just saying that when we read this, this is stuff that happened and that is, you know, um, documented and on film and in history. And certainly, every narrative is a certain slice as a certain take, um, you know, sort of bends a, a little bit of um, what happened for the sake of the narrative. But I mean, for the most part, these are things that I have grown up with as a historically verified and experienced reality. Um, in fact, um, the the last book, you know, part part of it sets the stage by introducing the conflicts that started to emerge within the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee (SNCC), which Lewis was, of course, a leader in. Um, that stage is set and that plays out in this third volume by the way i'm gonna heck a spoil i'm gonna spoil the the goof out of march volume three so if you haven't read it you don't want to know any details first of all this is all history <laughs> so there's nothing here that is a plot twist that i'm gonna give away but um second of all you know if you just want sort of a cold um read without having heard anything about it i'm gonna talk about it in depth so that's a warning but um the stage is being set for the kind of internal turmoils within SNCC that volume three is really going to talk about and play up and there's really part of a history the march on washington in volume two has occurred and that i think sets the stage for the national level of engagement that volume three is going to enter you know in volume three we start to have you know politics with um you know not just yes it still continues to be the politics with uh you know um the the local media and the um you know the governor your your George Wallace's and and things like that but now we're we're really on an LBJ level of um not antagonism but but of of struggle 
Um, and then, uh, you know, really the, the idea of Mississippi as an organizing center has kind of been established already in volume two. And a lot of the action, of course, um, begins in Mississippi or happens in Mississippi in this volume and then goes on to, um, to Alabama, where of course it all climaxes with the, um, the bloody Sunday scene that was depicted in the movie Selma. Now, I got to be honest with you. Um, I, I mentioned at, you know earlier on that all of this is very personally important to me. Um, despite that, I still haven't watched the film Selma. I actually bought it. Um, I wanted to see it in the theaters. I wanted to watch it as soon as I got it. But um, it's the <laughs> there's actually like a number of films that are I just know are so important to me that I can almost not bring myself to watch them and Selma is is the case with that um as a as a teenager and as a college student I watched those old PBS documentaries of um Eyes on the Prize you know multiple times those were again the sort of like you know the documents of contemporary social engagement for me um this book volume three opens with the four little girls that were killed at the 16th street baptist church and I, I was the weird teenager that bought the vhs tape of that that um spike lee documentary for little girls about these four little girls and just watched it on repeat because i was wanting to soak myself so much in the humanity of their story of the story of where the movement was at the time and what significance it had that these four little girls were bombed in that church basement um, and I think it was a sort of a dream come true, almost as this story is framed around John Lewis, you know, being there to witness President Obama's inauguration. It, it was, you know, s witnessing history before your eyes. And of course, he had witnessed, he had been an agent in history for so much of his life. But to see it culminate there um, was something amazing for him. And I remember certainly not at John Lewis levels, but having those kinds of emotions um, when, you know, President Obama was inaugurated. Um, a year before um, the Obama inauguration, it was actually, I think, during the election, um, I had the privilege of going with a group of fellow teachers on a tour of the civil rights sites that um, are are shown in this book. Um, I got to go to, you know, Nashville, Tennessee. I got to go to Selma. I got to go to um, even Ruleville, which is the 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 um, you know the place that Fannie Lou Hamer is from. And I got to um, not only to see these sites, but to visit several museums and and you know big and small commemorating aspects of the civil rights movement. We got to talk to um, you know soldiers, veterans of the movement who described what it was like for them. Some of them were children at the time. We got to talk to um, Reverend Kyle, who was at Dr. King's side when he was assassinated um, and was a important part of the movement. Um, I, I I remember. Um, uh, part of this whole experience, by the way, was also that as, you know, as a group of people studying the civil rights movement, we read uh, Walking in the Wind, which was John Lewis's autobiography together beforehand. And that book, if you enjoyed March and you want to dig deeper, um, it's, you know, it sort of retreads the same territory, but it's a great comparison, a great contrast in terms of what you know, similar things are said in an autobiography, what is shown in an autobiography and what's shown in a comic. There's, you know, mostly a ton of overlap, but there's things that, of course, you can do in a comic that you, you can't really do in an autobiographical work. Um, John Lewis wrote with Michael Dorso.
um, title again is Walking with the Wind, a memoir of the movement. And, uh, and, and there's also things that you, uh, you know, especially amounts of details that you cover in prose that you just can't get to even in a three volume, um, long comic, long form comic like we have with March. So I definitely recommend, um, John Lewis's book. Um, and, um, also, uh, while we were on this tour, we had the honor of going with uh, a Stanford professor named Claiborne Carson. He's written a lot about the civil rights movement and, uh, Martin Luther King and, um, nonviolence and, and things like that. And he had a book, uh, called In Struggle. It's a number of years old, but you can still find it easily on Amazon. And In Struggle is an account of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, and talks about, um, not just Lewis really, but SNCC, um, the, the, it's sort of, um, development in the freedom rider period. It's, um, eventual, uh, role in, um, things like the March on Washington and things like the, um, you know, the, the events of March volume three, and then also things that occurred afterwards that are hinted at, or that are, um, you know, the cleavages that are starting to be that, uh, John Lewis starts to describe in March three, um, the cleavages that end up becoming, uh, you know, the black power movement and black radicalism and so forth. Um, I probably not fair to say those are cleavages. It's really actually the sort of the, the trajectory, the progress of the movement. And, you know, I have to say that that was one of the things before launching into March that I was worried about, um, even before the first volume is knowing that part of John Lewis's, you know, story is that he was a prominent leader uh, of SNCC that at times being, um, a passionate young person and also a mouthpiece for SNCC. He, um, he, you know, came into conflict with, um, Dr. King's organizations and with other, you know, definitely with the NAACP. And then eventually there was sort of conflict within SNCC. And I, and I wondered how he would take that up, whether he would address that in the comic with honesty, um, with reflectiveness. And he certainly does. And I love that about, um, especially volume three, it's there in one and two, but it, it definitely, um, plays those notes um, a little bit stronger in, in volume three. So In Struggle by Claiborne Carson is another book I'd recommend about this movement and these times and, and um, you know, and, and having gone to many of those places, you know, the, I, I think that um, uh, what, uh, what March the comic does is that, um, let's see, I guess this is how I want to say it. I read a lot about the civil rights movement. I watched a lot of, you know, documentaries and films about the civil rights movement before I had gone there. And I don't think anything has given me quite the emotional content of going there as um, watching those documentaries and watching that original footage. But as far as a reading experience, nothing has done that quite as much as March. And I, I don't know if that would have been the case if I had read March 1st before I had read all this other stuff. But, you know, in terms of the details, the facts, the, the events, I sort of was already very familiar with them. And if you want to gain a familiarity with all of the dynamics of them, you don't start with a graphic novel, you know, or you don't, you don't look for it all there. You look for that amount of detail, although they cram in a ton of detail in these, in these comics for comics, you know, but if you, if you're really looking to, to dig deep and study the history, then you study stuff like what I just mentioned, you know, um, work by historians like Claiborne Carson. But if you want a sense of the emotional force, then I think seeing it um, 
I really nothing is like seeing it in person and hearing from people who were who were there and then go on and tell the the story but um but seeing it on on um in like a documentary is very very powerful hearing the songs as they are sung um you know like you know, keep your eyes on the prize you know um but there's something different about a reading experience, right? A reading experience is a um, is an at your own speed digestion of um, of ideas and thoughts, and it's always inspiring to watch um, or listen to something that's presented in a you know a visual format uh, like a film, like a documentary. But to sit and engage with the words, to stop and ponder, to be able to sort of drink deeply the way that you can with text. I just feel like that March provides a kind of experience of that, that, you know, having seen all kinds of movies of the civil rights movement, I didn't really experience until we went on this trip and I had the privilege of standing on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you know, sort of unguided, you know, by that point we, we'd already gotten the tour and the explanation and we'd read a bunch of the history and then we just got to wander around and I literally sat there until I was bored, you know, <laughs> there on the bridge and then bored. And then I, you know, sort of shook my head, blinked my eyes again and realized, remembered again, what happened there, you know, and this is of course the bridge that the um, scene that that's depicted in the climax of this book, the uh, the Bloody Sunday scene, occurred. You know, police on horses and John Lewis blood um, streaking his face. Um, I'd seen video of that. It was dramatic, and and that gave it all the significance. But just being able to stand there and ponder and let it sort of sink deep was um, was a very powerful experience. And I think reading a comic gets you a little bit closer to that it gets you to a, a part that is it's not um s totally subtextual or under consciousness it 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 does engage your consciousness but it also engages a kind of unspoken emotion a kind of psychological depth and here's where i want to talk about nate powell because as a cartoonist powell has always been able to draw what's so hard to say um, as I said, a lot of his comics have kind of dealt with people who are, um, you know, characters who are dealing with maybe schizophrenia or things like that, that you, you know, I've read really good prose about people with that, those kind of mental health difficulties, but you're always resorting to words when you're writing prose and, and words can be deceptive. And so if the words are being deceptive to the reader, who's trying to maintain their quote unquote right mind, um, then you're just always sort of trying to either read what's on the surface of the words or read what's under the words. But you're you're basically um, locked to text. You're locked to language. And what Powell can do is um, so effectively use um, imagery to to talk talk to depict you know affect. And um, and I think he does it beautifully he does it marvelously um one of the things that i got to do when i was on this civil rights tour is i got to meet a man named charles mclaurin who was who you know i think is still active to this day um in mississippi but he um is he in mississippi or is he in i think he's in mississippi forgive me if i make a mistake with that um but um he was actually sort of at the right hand throughout the whole movement of fannie lou hamer in fact it was i think he who was recruited to to 
sort of connect with Fanny Lou Hamer at a certain at a pivotal point in the movement. And so if you read the if you read March volume three, you know how important she is um, as a leader in the movement, as a leader in the Mississippi um, delegation that uh, was part of the, the the Freedom Project and the um, the, De- the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And he she stands up in the uh, uh, Democratic National Convention, and you know she's so powerful and poignant in her speech that LBJ has to. Um, you know, cook up a press conference to try to distract the media from from her speech, um, which of course backfires. But Fannie Lou Hamer, a major figure in the movement, and um, Charles McLaurin, who we got to meet and have lunch with, it was amazing. Um, was you know sort of you know by her side the entire time, sort of a a, par- a, a collaborator, a partner, a friend, close friend. And you know, I asked her, I asked him, just sitting there eating with him, I said, what stands out to you the most about Fannie Lou Hamer and I thought he would say something about her courage or I thought he would say something about her her eloquence I thought he would say something about her her honesty um you know from what I knew about her or maybe her persistence or and her perseverance her strength and what he said was what what stands out the most to him, what stood out the most to him about Fannie Lou Hamer was her spirituality that was not a word that I was prepared for <laughs> I was sort of like knocked out of my chair and I asked him what he meant. He described it that she had these reserves and these resources from, I think, from wrestling with the pain of all that she had experienced. You know, sharecropper, um, f- you know, family and uh, being barred despite her human rights from um, sort of, you know, her full citizenship and being able to vote and participate and so forth. And you know, she spoke from that, despite incredible opposition always in her life, despite danger in her life. And the reason he used the word spiritual is because he said that there there was something within her that was not circumstance dependent, that was not based on what you'd see with your eyes, but a kind of strength and a belief and a faith that came from something um, superhuman. And, um, and I, hearing that really just bowled me over because I realized that, um, you know, these heroes of the civil rights movement who, um, against, you know, all quote unquote logic, um, continued to press on with this great moral force. What they had pushing them was something spiritual and, um, Nate Powell has a way. Um, he has a way of doing something really, really effective. There's a scene late in the book where it's after the Democratic National Convention, and um, you know the the movement leaders have been denied the seats that they've fought for, and uh, every excuse me, everybody's kind of divided. And um, I'm trying to find it now. And in that scene. Um, you know, um, Lewis is describing how he's dejected, how everybody in the um, in the movement is is kind of uh, uh, you know losing connection, and um, you know they get on a flight. He, oh, here it is. It's on page. Uh, if you have the book with you, it's on page one twenty six or so, one twenty eight, uh, one twenty seven, and um, Lewis is talking about how he felt. Uh, devastated and naive and he and he felt like the movement was adrift and these pages are drawn in um 
a sort of panelless white background with um, either silhouetted small figures or close-ups that are you know heavily cast in shadow but basically tons of white negative space and so what Powell does and he's always done this actually maybe somebody saw this in him and and sort of that was part of them knowing that he was the right cartoonist for this work um, when it's white you know it doesn't actually give you a sense of things being clean it's not a clean slate um, it's actually a, a sort of as he says feeling of being adrift it's a sense of um, you know this whiteness as blankness as a kind of a sea of empty and that is a, a visual logic that I think most comics don't use because there's this um, association of white with a kind of cleanness and a kind of purity um, and meanwhile black um, black ink black on a page is often associated with a kind of um, you know it's similar to our our semantic associations with the word darkness right that there's something um, pejorative about it but what Powell does so much and so well is draw blackness as community blackness as depth blackness as force blackness as soul blackness as struggle and he does that with his um, ink he does that with his with you know pages that are all black he does that with shadow and he does that with faces and he and 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 so that you know it, 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 in a sort of black white and gray comic that's about the the black and white um you know america the black freedom struggle how do you handle blackness on a page um do you see in blackness um spirituality do you see in blackness strength do you see in blackness community um uh uh, a meeting of the hearts um that's what happens in these pages and then you know there are plenty of pages where um rough stuff is happening in blackness um but there's so many pages where you can see you know marchers standing up and in, in, in strength um folks driving with a fierce determination uh people mourning but mourning with a readiness to to move and to act that are just pages that are caked in 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 black ink and it's not black like somber and it's not black like ominous it's black like strength and um and then there's pages that are white that are not white like freedom they're white like a question mark and i, I think that's beautiful man maybe never maybe none of that is on the conscious level or intentional but it just is part of nate powell that just makes um the spirituality of this book so profound I mean, I, and I think another part of the spirituality of this book is how much action goes on in this book that, that is action that is representing direct nonviolent action, nonviolent direct action, um, as it's formally called, but I guess I'm saying that it's direct nonviolent action. It's, it's action that is um, exciting, that is heroic, and does not require your, our heroes to raise a fist. Um, and that's really moving to me. Um, and, and yet the characters are all just really, you know, intentionally and finely drawn. I mean, if this is my Justice League, you know, this is my Avengers. It's Diane Nash and it's, and it's Bob Moses. Bob Moses, by the way, Robert Moses went on to become a, a math teacher um, and to do algebra 
projects and he's an amazing person to study and to follow uh, that's another aspect of this comic that i really love i know john lewis is our hero here of course king is throughout but the way that the movement gets reduced to martin luther king and his band of you know happy brothers or something like that is just and sorry that was terrible i don't mean the brothers like brothers i just mean like you know merry men that that reduction of the movement to a, a uh, you know, single hero or maybe a pair of heroes, Malcolm and, and Martin or something like that, um, is um, one of the one of the misreadings, one of the errors that we take away from the civil rights movement, as if it were primarily about um, one person it, and not about you know sort of the the you know the every person, the the, the kids who would you know walk out from their schools to, to go sit in at the lunch counters or the, um, the, the women who would, um, stand up and lead or sometimes distribute things at churches or march or, you know, those are the people who are the movement. That was the movement. Um, but anyway, you know, the, the way that Diane Nash is presented, Bob Moses is presented, Fannie Lou Hamer is presented, like this is my justice league. These are heroes real, um, with, as I was saying about Fannie Lou Hamer, a strength that is supernatural. And, um, and I love that, especially in volume three, all of the layers of the conflict that are involved in the civil rights movement are there. There's the internal struggle of, you know, when, um, uh, Schwerner, Goodman and Cheney are, are, are missing. And then, you know, you're the, the people beside you in the movement are killed. And that is an internal struggle. Um, the story that um, uh, that Fannie Lou Hamer tells at the Democratic National Convention, that's a powerful internal struggle. And Lewis himself and the things that he asks himself, the sense that SNCC is falling apart, um, you know, that is an internal struggle. On that level, the book is working. And then there's the, the sort of level of who we are as a movement. You know, like, I love it that this comic has quote-unquote action scenes that are about organizing you know like heroic action that is about uh, um, communication about deliberation about compromise about you know a group of people sitting together and figuring out how do we engage in this struggle together um uh you know and, and and so it's on that level. It's on the level of of who are we as a community of of the movement. Um, how do we reconcile these different voices and these different perspectives from within us and among us? And I love that it also has this big national confrontation stage. You know that uh, in the in the decisions about say the Mississippi Mississippi Freedom Summer Project, you know the decision between whether we're going to be continuing to be the headline grabbing you know, direct action uh, to get voters registered and things like that? Or are we going to become, <clears throat> excuse me, more of a, um, you know, literacy and freedom schools and quietly register people kind of, um, you know, kind of movement? And they decide we're going to do it all. We're going to make it a, a unifying quest that by hook or by crook, sometimes the headline grabbing confrontation, sometimes the, um, the slow and tireless organizing effort in the streets, um, you know, the, 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 um, the fact that you have all of these levels, including the level where you figure out, you know, you, you hear Lewis saying, all right, this is how we're going to get him, uh, about LBJ, you know, how, this is how we're going to force his hand. This is how we're going to, um, really, um, display and show, you know, the, the 
deep, deep injustice. We're, this is how we're going to put uh, white racism, white supremacy in, in the United States on full display for the world to see. Um, it's just operating on every level, physical and spiritual. It's um, national and local. Um, and it's it's really exciting in book three, and I love that book three is like the thickest of the three because it's all kind of coming together and it all plays out in this um, in this book. So yeah, um, it's it's amazing. Um, I, I guess I, I do want to take a second to talk a little bit about um, what I think the book means for comics and not for comics, what the book is kind of presenting that is important to some of the themes that I was saying. Um, I, I kind of want to turn to um, a book called A Force More Powerful, uh, subtitled A Century of Nonviolent Conflict, written by Peter Ackman, Ackerman and, and Jack Duvall. And they sort of document in this book, um, you know, different uh, movements of nonviolent action, nonviolent sanctions, um, strikes and boycotts in the Philippines and... Um, you know, against the Nazis and uh, in Chile and stuff like that. And so in the chapter about the American Civil Rights Movement, um, this is what they say. The American Civil Rights campaigners of the 1960s contributed one other thing to the power of nonviolent resistance in the final third of the 20th century. Because they were conscious that nonviolent sanctions had been successful earlier in history and because they were convinced that the use of these sanctions had intrinsic advantages in resisting oppression, their success conferred on nonviolent action, a new aura of effectiveness that it had never before possessed. Not only did the mass media popularize the story of what was done in the American South, they universalized the impression that nonviolent force could be more powerful. Um, in the United States, that force transformed the social fabric and political direction of the nation. In Nashville and other southern communities, the sit-ins separated white leaders who had no deep interest in preserving segregation from those who did. The most ambivalent elements of the old order were detached from the most intransigent. I'm going to skip ahead. What made this possible was, again, the growing role of television in American life. Commotion on the streets was experienced vicariously by millions of people, even if this did not guarantee immediate action. It did reframe the public interest. The Freedom Rides in the Birmingham demonstration in the spring of 63 and the march from Selma to Montgomery two years later, which is, of course, what's depicted in this book, created unforgettable images of conflict between local authorities and nonviolent protesters, transferring legitimacy and popular sympathy from one to the other and changing the political environment in which national leaders had to operate. I mean, I think that what um, Ackerman and Duvall are saying about the power of these images, and you know, it's a point obviously that's been made before, but but um, what they what they can do in looking at nonviolent movements throughout the century is to say that these images came about at a pivotal point in history. They were pivotal. They were instrumental because you had already this idea of nonviolent action of nonviolent resistance being a possibility but it's just an idea you know very few got to actually witness gandhi um very few got to witness the danes against the nazis but now in a time when television could capture and um repeat images around the world you had um you know john lewis bloodied on the edmund pettus bridge and that image conveyed around the world was uh, powerful in making the case um, 
maybe you know like the 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 nonverbal case the case that we all sort of uh truly live by you know the case that comics um insinuate um the case that is made by images um made the case for the possibility the the potency the um effectiveness of this kind of action and um and i think th really the public has not been the same since um in america and and throughout the world um i i think the last thing i wanted to just kind of touch on was that um i i think that lewis's story is the one that um you know is one that is really most worth telling in the kind of with the kind of mainstream um uptake that it has received and i says said earlier i like that um john lewis was um introspective and he's very honest he's always been very honest in his reflections on um, the movement and where it went um, but i think as this sort of cent central figure on whom everything else um, pivots and moves you get a certain perspective of the movement and i think if you're going to get any one person's perspective of the movement i love that it's john lewis um, but i i think that it's only a small portion of what the movement was and I think that's important because I think um, when you look at even contemporary struggles, you know, this book is very much written not just to document history, but to inspire, you know, it's sort of an explicit pedagogical purpose to inspire future generations. As Raina Telgemeier says on the back of this, um, uh, you know, Lewis's story will invite, will enlighten and inspire future generations of readers and leaders. And that's true. And I think, and I can't wait to read March with my daughter. I haven't yet, but... Um, I, I will very soon. And um, part of this inspiration to me, though, is is to recognize that, um, as I was saying earlier, the movement isn't one person. And you have to sort of um, consider the different points of views of very different people who had um, a, a slightly different t experience as much as they were a unified movement. Um, I'm trying to re I'm trying to find a passage from. Um, this book in struggle by Claiborne Carson, but uh, you know it's describing how Lewis was, you know, his skull was fractured during um, the attack, the the the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Uh, here, the brutal assault on marchers at Pettus Bridge dispelled the previous reservations of many SNCC workers, and what Carson is alluding to is to, is to, is some of the um, the internal differences that were emerging uh, among people in SNCC. Uh, four carloads of Mississippi staff members suddenly left a COFO meeting in Jackson in cars assigned to the Mississippi projects to drive to Selma. Another group attending the executive committee meeting in Atlanta decided to charter a plane rather than make the five-hour drive to Selma. This response revealed the deeply ingrained desire for militant action even among hardliners who believed that protests were counterproductive. We were angry, Sellers recalled, and we wanted to show Governor Wallace, the Alabama State Highway Patrol, Sheriff Clark, Selma's whites, the federal government, and poor Southern blacks and other Selmas that we didn't intend to take any more shit. Pardon my language. This is a non-cussing podcast. Excuse me. I'm quoting. We would ram the march down the throat of anyone who tried to stop us. 
concern for those who had been attacked and an understanding of the value of protest activity as a training ground for those who would sustain the struggle prompted the SNCC workers' reaction. But it did, but it also indicated an absence of staff discipline and the tendency of SNCC's decision-making process to break down in a crisis. Um, what this paragraph describes is that, um, you know, the, some of the internal turmoil about tactics and about ends within the movement, um, you know, would, were still playing out even after, you know, history kind of remembers and the films have made it so that this is a kind of climax and then afterwards Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act and blah, 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 and we're all set, right? <laughs> um, but, um, you know, this all this stuff is is playing out in a... Um, in a real life situation where people have honest differences as people who have all, you know, committed themselves in their own consciences to the movement. And, um, and yet, you know, at the beginning of the paragraph, I think what it shows is that, you know, John Lewis, uh, and the marchers on the Edmund Pettus bridge, they, they, this was not the radical end of SNCC. Um, SNCC might've been the radical end of the movement, but, but, you know, John Lewis wasn't, the um the stokely carmichael um he wasn't the uh you know eventual black panther party part of snick and yet his action uh, as a leader his suffering as um a nonviolent direct action protester and in fact the suffering of all of them whether you felt like it was a a you know a weak tactic or whether you you know saw in them you know jesus and and Gandhi and whoever, um, it was provocative, you know, it was provocative, the blood that they shed, the blood that they shed inspired the action, the call to arms of everybody who talked about working for justice. Uh, but now in this display of, um, you know, really the most direct of nonviolent direct action, where you directly confront people standing in front of you to stop you from, you know, gaining your, your, your full rights, your full humanity. Um, that's as strong a picture as you could possibly create, uh, with the cost of your own blood. Um, yeah. Uh, John Lewis writes in, um, in walking with the wind, he said, um, they're, they're in, in turmoil again about this decision. This is after the um, trip of the leaders to, to Africa with Harry Belafonte, and they're considering what to do next. He said, um, the only decision left to make was in what capacity I would march. It was decided that I would take part, but not as a member of SNCC. I would march simply as John Lewis. That hurt me. I never imagined that my own organization, SNCC, would ever step aside and tell me to walk alone. It hurt me personally and it hurt in an even deeper sense to know that they were abandoning these people, the people of Selma. For the first time since I had become part of the movement, I was walking alone in a sense. I would be walking with the people, but my people, the people of SNCC, would not be with me. The fact that those two could ever be separated, the people and SNCC, was something I'd never imagined. Um, and at this point in the book, it's actually a, sort of a pivot point to the next part of the book. You can see that um, Lewis is kind of parting ways with um, some of the people that he's been in the struggle with um, deeply. And I read that because I think that is there's something incredibly noble and heroic about what he does. 
And then there's also a recognition that you have that um, not everybody has John Lewis's story and not everyone went John Lewis's way. And the fact that there are different perspectives of different people who are also heroic just reminds us that um, as much as this is an account and a story that's everything that I've been waiting for and longing for in comics, <laughs> um, the, all of the visuals of, uh, of turning upside down what the rule of violence does in our world are here. So in, in every way, March is what I've, you know, <laughs> what my soul longs for in comics. Um, yet it's not the only perspective and it's, it's not the only story. It's not the only heroism. And I think, um, you know, Congressman Lewis would, would probably be quick to, to acknowledge that, recognize that as well. I think he, he shows that in the book. Um, but of course this is, his story and this is their story this is the story of the 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 large unifying center that i think lewis is very much part of and very much represents and um and that's why it's so exciting that this is now in this form available for the you know for hundreds and hundreds and uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids to consume um many families to read together um many adults to either be reminded or to um beef up on or to gain a new perspective on on the civil rights movement um when we were there in the south me and this group of teachers it was interesting to be around there and to talk to um people both black and white in the south and to realize that now you know however many years later 50 years later um many of those divisions still exist um, there are still streets where um you know it's clearly an all-black neighborhood, clearly an all-white neighborhood. Bars where you just, um, well, you certainly feel weird as an Asian person, <laughs> you being me. <laughs> but um, but you also get this feeling that um, there's their Selma and there's our Selma, um, and not everywhere, not everywhere. And I'm, I'm not from there, so I'm not speaking from deep experience. But um, it was just so different from my experience um, growing up as a Californian. And um, made me recognize that when you when we you know have stories like March, there's still a lot of work to be done in all of us in gaining understanding of one another, in gaining understanding of how the arc of history is bending toward justice and what it's going to take for us as a society, um, for us as you know very different multiple communities to come to the place of of peace to come to a place of you know genuine dialogue and understanding um yeah this is a part of that this is a big part of that i hope march is read everywhere um and i would be glad to do whatever i can to help make that so okay into now almost an hour of my 20 minute podcast thanks for listening um as i told uh you at the top i'm gonna take a break hiatus until um about mid-august at which point i will assess um, so if you've enjoyed any of this podcast, um, this episode or any others, please let me know. Um, you can let me know by rating and reviewing on iTunes. You can, um, like on SoundCloud if you're not a robot. Um, <laughs> uh, you can, um, find us on Stitcher. You can tweet me at tuply at gmail.com. Uh, sorry, you can tweet me at tuply. It's about one in the morning now, <laughs> or you can email me at tuply at gmail.com. 
Uh, thank you. Thanks for listening this long. Um, I encourage you to read March. Encourage you to read John Lewis's work. Con- encourage you to continue to dig deep into the movement, and I encourage you to let it check, um, make you think critically about our action in, in the world today. Okay. Thanks for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>